Welcome to The Lex Factor, a lawfully good podcast where we'll brief you on the business of law so you can build a better practice and capture more billable hours. Hello, welcome back to another edition of the Lex Factor podcast. This is Randy Shorefighter. You may not recognize my voice as a regular host because Lauren Hoffman is not here. She is on her honeymoon. Which is a weak excuse, by the way. Yeah, it is a weak excuse. Very weak excuse. I don't know who signed off on that. But anyway, and Brad Pobble isn't here because evidently he had an important meeting, which I don't believe, but that's okay. We'll go from there. Well, I'm starting the rumor that they're on that honeymoon together, <laughs> which may come as a surprise to both of their right. spouses. Exactly but, right, uh, yeah. If you're not here to defend yourself, it, it becomes true in the podcast sphere. <laughs> Hopefully their spouses don't listen to the podcast. But right. anyway, so uh, this is Randy Shorefighter. You recognize my voice in other previous pinch-hitting roles. And today we have very special guests joining us. Our one special guest is the CEO of Lexicon, Scott Brennan, and Scott will be our leader in the discussion today, so I'll turn it over to Scott. Yeah, I'll be pinch hitting for for Lauren and Brad. And we have two other probably more important guests. So first we have Bob Tommaso, who is the president of BAMSL. For those of you not from the St. Louis area, it's the Bar Association of Missouri-St. Louis. And he is also the managing partner at Hush Blackwell. I'm sure everybody knows that firm. And also joining us is Susan McCourt-Baltz, who is the executive director of BAMSL. For those who don't know, Hush Blackwell is a law firm that is very client-focused. You're ranked amongst the top 10% of the 650 law firms that serve large business organizations. And you are first among Missouri-based AMLA 100 firms, according to the 2021 BTI Client Service A-Team report, which is a survey that goes out to general counsels of corporations that use law firms that specialize in the business of law. Thank you, Bob for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. For all of us, clients are our lifeblood, right? For for you guys, it's your actual clients. For for Lexicon, it is law firms like, like yourselves. And client relationship management in the law is something that I think a lot of firms struggle with, right? We hear that from a lot of our, our customers as we talk to them that none of them feel like they're putting the right amount of time or effort into it because they get distracted by so much other stuff. However, it's important to note that Nearly 50% of consumers who are shopping for a law firm, and I I would presume this is also true for a general counsel who's looking for a law firm to represent them in a specific type of matter where they don't have expertise, are relying on family and friends to give them referrals or coworkers. And so if you have clients who are unhappy, you're not picking up nearly what could be 50% of your business which seems to me to be a big problem. Uh, you know, for Lexicon, we would not find that to be a satisfactory number at all. How, how do you guys in the practice of law address that, that gap? You know, I think it's, um, it's a critical issue, and I, I will tell you this. I think the problem one is that law schools don't teach anything about clients. Um, I, I, I thought I went to a pretty good law school, and, and we learned nothing. I, the word client, I think, was used once in three years, <laughs> and it was to write a client letter in legal writing. Um, and I think that's problem one. I mean, I, I think most lawyers come out of law school um, impressed with their own scholarship and not really concerned about uh, the client. And so we have to train them, train young lawyers to, to be more client-focused. Um, you mentioned BTI. We're thrilled with our results every year uh, in the BTI survey. Um, but, you know, responsiveness is absolutely critical. And, and you know, I, I always preach to our younger lawyers, ask the client what it wants to do and, and then tell them how it could do that. Yeah. There's a lot of clients approach you with 
an idea. Um, we'd like to do A, B, and C. And the lawyer uh, almost always says, oh, you can't do it. You can't. And, and so, you know, ask them what they want to do and see if you can help them accomplish it in some way. Yeah. What's the end game? Not exactly. Don't dictate the path to get there, but where do you want to go? And then how can we help you get there? Exactly. And, and by the way, you're absolutely right about referrals. And it doesn't matter. You know, I, I'm, I come from a mega firm. We have 800 lawyers across the country. But, but even more importantly, to the two-lawyer personal injury firm, it's all about referrals. It's all about relationships. Um, I refer work to lawyers I know will take good care of my friends who, who say they need a personal injury lawyer. Um, so it's all about relationships. When you talk about training young associates coming into your firm, do you have a standard? We, we have some customers who I know have a standard. If the call comes in before 5 p.m. on a business day, it has to be returned by 8 p.m. that evening unless you're out and then you expect a coworker or a paralegal to handle that call to ensure that a client never is sitting, like, stewing that nobody's gotten back to them. We have a rule that you have to return a client's call within an hour. Oh, wow. Um, All right. And, uh, um, you know, it, it amazes me that it doesn't get done sometimes anywhere. Um and, you know, with technology today, all of our voicemails are forwarded to you as an email. We're probably not unique in that regard. So even if you're out of the office, you know, on a beach somewhere, um, you ought to be able to see that. There are a lot of lawyers, including some of my firm, who love the out-of-office notice. You know, I'll be out of the office doing X, Y, and Z. I think it's the worst thing in the world. I've yeah. never used it once. I'm always out of the office. Um, but why would I want to use that to make the client think that their problem isn't important to me? Um, I just return the call. As, as quickly as I possibly can. Yeah, which makes a ton of sense. I, I'm also not a fan of the out-of-office message for the same reason, right? It just says, I'm doing something that I decided was more important than reading your email. Exactly. Going to the young lawyer um, issue for one second, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to promote Bob because I know he won't promote himself, but I've known him for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And when I was, I worked with Bob back in a prior life and he was a young lawyer back then. And one of the things that he did well was he started planting seeds early and he didn't just go play golf or just go to lunch. He was also working his clients and asking his clients what they needed. Um, He used survey, we used surveys when I was there in that day. I don't know if they still do or not, but, um, you know, and and I think people want to work with people they like. And I don't want to underestimate the fact that Bob is a likable person. He doesn't know that oh yet. God, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not even like to this him. room, let alone outside this room. But he is likable and he is fun and he is approachable. And he did intentionally make friends early on that have grown into clients, that have grown into bigger clients. And then he also mentored younger clients to bring them along. And I think that that's really important in any business, not just law firms. Yeah. I well, I, I will say this, and I, I don't know how good I am at it, but I, I will tell you that it helps if it's sincere. Right. Like I've been with lawyers making pitches, talking to people, and you can spot insincerity from a mile away. Um, I have the, the benefit in this practice of liking most people I meet, um, even though I tell them I don't like them. It's a great way to lower <laughs> expectations. Um, but, you know, relationships are, are critical. People want to use lawyers, doctors, whomever that they trust. And um, building that relationship is very, very important. Yeah, it is. And, and a couple of statistics that, that just show how unique Hush is. You, you may not know this, but fewer than 10% of potential clients speak to an attorney when they call ever, which is just a shocking number to me. And then secondly, over 40% of people who leave a voicemail wait two to three days before they hear back from that attorney. 
Wow. Well, listen, I'm not saying I'm perfect at, at, with it, but I answer my own phone. I mean, my assistant doesn't generally answer my yeah. phone for me. And every once in a while, some client or prospect will call and they'll say, oh my God, you answer your own phone. Like, who else is going to answer it? You know, I don't have a cadre of 12 people out there <laughs> screening my calls. I don't know who it is. So I think that's important. And, um, you know, you mentioned, Susan mentioned uh, client feedback. And I, one thing about lawyers is that they're very, very risk averse as people. Yeah. They hate bad news. And so they'll do whatever they can do to avoid bad news. It's why one of, some of them don't market. They don't market because they don't want to be rejected. Uh, and most of the time, you're going to get rejected. I get rejected all the time, and I've had a very nice uh, practice. Um, and the other thing is they don't survey clients because they don't, they're afraid to get bad news. Well, the, you're not going to get any news if you don't survey the client. And it's critical today to survey clients. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that is one of the things that we offer to attorneys who maybe don't know how to go out and survey their clients. And and it is a rare firm when we raise it who says, oh, yeah, we already do some version of that, right? Best case you might get, they send a, a little one or two question survey when the matter is closed. But I'm imagining that, that you guys will will go to the effort of surveying throughout the process, right? You, you identify those key points where customers might lose their engagement with you. They might begin to, to feel like you're not providing the right level of satisfaction. So you want to you want to collect that information real time so you can course correct. You know, you, if you don't know, you can't fix it. We do it annually on a formal basis. Um, and then good lawyers do it informally as often as you possibly can. Yep. And by the way, like, I've gotten a lot of these surveys back and I've said, oh, damn. You know, that person said, we, oh, my God. that's I thought this lady was my best friend. And she said, my firm isn't responsive enough, but you've got to pay attention to that and talk to the people who are interfacing with the client to make sure that you're paying attention. You know, it's one thing to survey, but it's nothing to listen. Yeah. Uh, and by all means, listen. I, I was in a negotiation with a client the other day about rates. Um, and I was having trouble listening because she was, I think, being unreasonable. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we came to an understanding on our rate structure because um, she was very direct about what she wanted and I was very direct about what we could give her. I think, too, when you ask people how you're doing and it's sincere and genuine, you come out with more business. So when you're talking about what you're doing for them, then they talk to you about their other problems and you can identify other opportunities through that as well. And I remember young in my young legal marketing career um, talking to a partner about golf and he said, I, when I go out on the golf course, I never come back without more work. So I think that the, the opportunities are out there, too, if you can learn to identify them. Yeah. That could have been me, and I was lying to you. <laughs> I play golf. He just wants to, to play have golf. <laughs> fun, but sometimes it results in work. I mean, I think one thing that we also see when we talk to law firms is they don't always do a great job of setting that client expectation up front. So somebody walks into the office and they've got an issue, and as you said, the first thing you don't want to do is just trample whatever it is that they said and say you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you, you know, how I'm going to solve all your problems, but. There is a process that law firms follow when working on a particular matter type. And I think good attorneys take the time to sit down with the client and actually walk them through, here's, here's all the steps and here's what this is going to mean. And maybe, and I know it might be crazy, ideally, this is probably roughly what it's going to cost you. Are you on board for this journey? I see it very often. Um, I have to admit, sometimes in our own firm, but often with uh, other firms and uh, clients. You know, setting the client's expectations to a reasonable degree yeah. is critical. But it, 
it's sort of in conflict with the notion of getting the work, right? So what a puffy lawyer will do, someone who thinks they're great and I'm marketing, so I'm going to say, oh, this is a dead bang winner and we'll get this dismissed in three months. Um, well, a couple of things about that. I mean, one, I, I believe in bragging. I believe in bragging about other people. I don't believe bragging about your, yourself. Is, it's a turnoff. It's, that's not something that's going to bring in the business. Um, and so I, when I'm pitching to clients or talking to clients, love to brag about my partners, never brag about myself. Fortunately for me, that comes easily because there's nothing to brag about. Um, but the other thing that's critical is to set that client's expectations. And if on the one hand, you're telling them, oh, I see this case all the time, we're going to kill them. Um, that That's a very unreasonable expectation. Um, and, and when you mention, you know, cost, what, what we're seeing now, Scott, more and more clients want budgets. Yeah. They want you to stick to the budget. They want you to tell them if you're going to go over the budget. And they really are looking for, and we do a lot of it, uh, fixed fees. Sure, or not Al- to exceeds. Yeah. Yeah. Alternative fee arrangements. So, so an alternative fee arrangement to me is not, oh, we won't charge you $500 an hour. We'll charge you $450 an hour. That's not really an alternative. That's just a discount. An alternative fee is, hey, um, you've got this transaction. We've done six of these this year. We can do that for $325,000. And if we go over We'll tell you and we'll rebate some of the money. We'll work with you so that, you know, we don't have an incentive to go over. If we go under uh, that number, we'll return some of that uh, fee to you in some way or maybe even cut it at a point. But the partnership, it's established between the lawyer or the law firm and the client is critical in alternative fee situation. Yeah, I think we're seeing more and more of that in, in business-focused law. I, I, I hear – through our, our law firm customers, it is creeping more and more into the consumer side of the business, right? Even, even an individual is saying, hey, I, I don't like this idea of this open check, checkbook that you're asking me to, you know, to just give you carte blanche to do whatever it's going to take. I, I also want to maintain a budget. At some level, there's been um, alternative fee arrangements with consumers. Uh, I, I remember meeting a bankruptcy lawyer in 1991 when everybody was in bankruptcy court, uh, and I said, "How do you?" He, he was literally carrying a large um, laundry basket of files into the courtroom. Guy was Phi Beta Kappa, really smart guy, and I said, "So how do you get this many files? What's going on?" He goes, "I charge a fixed fee of three thousand dollars to get you through your Chapter Seven bankruptcy, um, and people know what it's going to cost, and um, so it gets me more business. And yeah, I have to carry a laundry basket into the bankruptcy court. Especially, I guess, if you're doing bankruptcy, you want to make sure you get that money up. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But I mean, we've done, you know, we have some clients. So, so on the litigation side, we have some clients for whom we will have a fixed fee." You know, several hundred, uh, one close to a million dollars a year doing their employment law work uh, nationwide. And and so there will be years when we, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, lose money. Um, you never really lose money. Um, but you wish you had done better with the time you had invested. Um, so it, it is it is not just a uh, corporate or transactional law thing. It, it has crept in. With, we've got clients for whom we do um, – fixed fee arbitrations. I mean, you got to sit down with a client, share information. Um, but if you're honest with each other and share a lot of information, uh, I hate the phrase, but it can be a win-win for both the lawyer and the client. Yeah. I don't hate that phrase. I, th- I think I think it can describe the a desirable outcome. And by the way, not all attorneys have that that attitude, right? That I think the fact that you're open to that idea that, hey, our firm needs to make money, but you also as a client 
need to be satisfied, and ideally you've got enough money to hire me again, you know, it, it resonates with me. It, it does. And, I, and again, though, it gets back to the lawyer and risk. Uh, if you quote a fixed fee, um, then you're taking on a risk that a lot of lawyers don't want to take on. And of course, you know, again, they weren't taught that in law school. The other thing about fixed fee for for smaller firms that that I've noticed is they don't have the infrastructure to track time efficiently, right? And, th- and there is this thought process that I've seen creep into law firms, even pretty sizable law firms who are already pay for the paralegal. I throw all this fixed fee stuff to them. So why do I need to track their time? Which to me just seems ludicrous <laughs> because you, if it takes five times longer than you expect for one matter type, you're just throwing perfectly good money out and you're continuing to bid too low. So how do you guys control for that? Do you do you have good cost and time controls yeah, in place? Yeah, I mean, we, we get reports on everything. Uh, we have profitability analysis based on the lawyer's compensation and billable hours projected for the year. Um, and I find it all very annoying, but it's, it's important. <laughs> um, I will tell you this. It, to me, it's even more incumbent on the small and solo practitioners to analyze their costs versus their uh, revenue for profitability, right? I mean, they have an advantage. I tell my plaintiff's lawyer friends all the time, you guys, if you're good, you get to do triage. Yeah. You get to say no. Most defense firms, if the if the company that called us or put out an RFP, um, if they have the ability to pay, we're going to do it. I mean, we don't turn down. I mean, unless someone's just a horrible human being, um, and you have to say it horrible. Like, if they're just a bad person, we'll still represent uh, them. Um, there has to be true brand reputation damage just yeah. by associating with them. It's, yeah. Well, it's happened before. It's happened to all of us at big firms. But we don't turn down a lot of work. So we don't have that advantage of um, triage that a, that a small and solo practitioner have. And they need to do triage. I mean, the good ones are making lots of money and having a great deal of free time because they're very selective in their cases. I, clients ask me all the time, well, no lawyer's going to take that case, will they? And I'm like, yeah, some lawyer will, probably a bad one yeah. uh, because they've got, not on yeah, <laughs> yeah. they've, they've got nothing else going on. They've got nothing else going on. They'll take that bad case. Yeah. Yeah. No press is bad press. That's what the marketers say. But some is, and you can associate yourself with somebody who's toxic mm-hmm. and do real brand damage. People will still talk about it, though, yeah, you, in the press. Yeah, they're talking about you. I'll give you that. <laughs> you know, so if we look specifically at Hush, when you ask for feedback, what's in that annual survey, if you don't mind sharing oh, yeah. with us? No, not at all. You know, did you find our firm responsive? Did you find our law firm cost effective? Were you pleased with the results? Did the results meet your expectations? Um, it's only about, I think, six or seven questions. Um, and then they're entitled to comment. And really, if someone gives you you know, eight out of 10. I don't get bogged down on that. But if someone makes a comment, well, you ought to really focus on that comment. Because yeah, they cared enough to take the 30 seconds to Absolutely. jot Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we're talking about, in some cases, the general counsel of publicly traded, you know, company worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Um, that's, a, that's, that's somebody whose time is important. And if they were willing to give you feedback, you ought to be thrilled to get it. Yeah. Even if it's negative. If yeah. it's negative, learn from it. You know, don't have such thin – I think this is a great profession. But it's a much better profession for people with thick skin than it is thin skin. I agree with that. And it's not important to just listen to their feedback if it's negative. It's important to 
to have the intellectual honesty to say, we need to change something. Like our process is broken, right? And if, if we consistently see one of those questions where you've got unsatisfactory answers, you need to fix something while you've still got time. And we see that a lot where a lot of attorneys, and again, we, we work more with the small and medium-sized guys. They'll, they'll get that negative feedback and, and they immediately lawyer it up, right? They do, they do what is serve them well in court, which is I'm going to now pick holes in every one of these negative responses. I'm going to accept all the positives as gospel truth, right? Because clearly they describe me and my firm accurately. But these negative people, I remember that person on unre- unrealistic expectations. That person had a bad day. This person's cousin doesn't like me. It, and we, we've heard some crazy excuses why this survey feed, feedback, which is pretty consistent, is invalid for this one, you know, this one question where there's obviously something the firm should be doing differently. Well, I'm, Susan can address this because of her time at the bar plan, which ensures um, small, medium-sized firms. Um, but I think the biggest fear for any lawyer, but certainly for a lawyer um, in a, in a medium-sized or smaller firm, is the malpractice claim. And so they hear negative comments from a client, and they get worried about having a malpractice claim. I could see that, right? And, and again, it's, it's that reaction of, if you're an attorney, I've trained for every contingency. I'm going to circle the wagons. I'm going to protect myself. And I think that the the social media has opened up the survey process as well. I think when you're when you open up yourself to criticism online and getting negative feedback online, it's easy to get um, discouraged and it's easy to not want to do that. It's easy to take that to heart. And especially when you're a solo and you're a small firm, then you your livelihood is on the line. I mean, one person says something negative about Bob, it's not going to impact if he, his firm exists. But one person says something negative and it grows online. And this is especially true, um, you know, for people that can't that can't speak for themselves. What I've trained my staff in the past, and what I've talked to other lawyers about, is kind of the rule of three, especially when it comes to complaining online and publicly. The rule of three: one person, you know, one person's going to have a negative opinion, but if you get three people saying the same thing, then that usually will indicate a problem. So you might need to pay attention. Now. Right. Right. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is is beyond a survey. You can control a survey, and you can keep it inside your four walls. But yeah, nothing today prevents a disgruntled client from going to Yelp or Google and blasting you. And and I think we all know that that allows for a very passive aggressive experience, right? Where I might not have the willingness or the gumption to sit in front of you and say, I don't like what you just did. But it it doesn't take a lot of mental fortitude to go back home while you're sitting on your couch and you know, type out a, a nasty gram and blast it for the world to see. Well, and, maybe, and a lot of times lawyers can't defend themselves when someone does that either. Yeah. Or, and maybe even worse for some law firms is the disgruntled former associate or former employee. Um, you know, above the law is uh, an area where people just, you know, oh, I didn't get hired by them, but they stink. Or I got fired by them yeah. because they stink. Or they're, you know, they're laying off people. Um, and so, you know, your alumni association whether you're a small firm or a big firm, is critically important, not only to your reputation, um, but also to growing your business. I mean, most lawyers, I meet a lot of lawyers who are been out 20, 30, 40 years. Um, they're always doing pretty well. 
Um, so they might have gone in-house for a company and they might control a lot of business. And as, as, a, as a lawyer representing companies, don't you want that person saying good things about you? Yeah. Don't you want that person coming back to use you uh, as, as their lawyer? Um, and certainly the same with the smaller firms. You want people out there singing your praises. Um, so your alumni association, and everyone has one, um, is critically important to your practice's success. Yeah. And a lot of the big consulting firms do that really well. Mm-hmm. Um, law firms, maybe not quite as well. <laughs> we, we learned from the accounting firms. They were masters at it. I yeah. mean, I started to host alumni parties a few years back. Um, and by the way, these these alumni, it's not like they wanted to see me. They want to see each other. Right. Um, and then we networked them through our website with a portal just for alumni. Well, accounting firms were 20 years ahead of us. You know, they had these great parties and they, they roasted and toasted their alumni. And we did a terrible job of it until about 10 years ago. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's a great way to, to raise your profile in the legal community, raise your profile in, in your geographic area if you're, if you're just a single, single office firm. It really does help with that outreach. The other thing that, that you can do, you know, Susan, to your point about the social media blasters is, you know, that works really well in conjunction with surveys because – if I do surveys and I've got 95% are positive, you know, you don't want that one negative voice out there blasting you on, on Yelp or, or Google. Take those other 95 people who gave you a positive review and encourage them to, to leave a positive message on those same mediums because you can use the volume of happy customers to overwhelm that one lone voice, whether it's legitimate or not, who's saying something negative about your firm. That's just kind of evolved, though. You know, two marketing tactics have always worked, tried and true. I've been out of out of school for 25 years plus. But I remember learning this in grad school, and then it's continued to be true in every position I've had since, and that's testimonials work. Yep. If you can tell, and it goes back to Bob saying that he brags about his partners, if you can have someone else tell your story, it adds credibility to it. And the other thing that always works is statistics. I mean, you came in this meeting chock full of statistics. They say something, they resonate. So if you can say 95% of my customers are happy, hopefully you have, you know, more than two, but (laughs) (laughs) um, 95% of my customers are happy, that says something or, you know, get down further into your stats, into your um, return on investment. Those are just two marketing tactics that have worked tried and true over the years. And and I think social media can, if you can figure out a way to use that in your social media, it's, it uh, usually generates high impressions, high engagement. Yeah, at a low cost. So it's right. marketing judo. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, had a, I had a partner, Susan knows, uh, years ago who used to ask, what are we selling? What are we, are we selling price? Are we selling success? Are we selling some value? Are we selling expertise? Um, and of course, it should be all of the above. But if you're selling expertise, and again, you should be, then it's pretty easy to get those client testimonials. I'm always struck by uh, smaller law firms, uh, you know, solo, small firms that have client testimonials on their website. Now, I can't go check them most of the time, but I, I'm happy to see those. And we use them too. I mean, if you, if you handled uh, an ERISA case for an ESOP company – which I've done half a dozen times, and you did a good job, then you ought to be able to get, as I've done, three contacts at those clients to sign a letter and give to you so you can put it on the desk of the person making the decision to hire your law firm for the next time that case comes up. And it's very, very persuasive. If you can walk into a pitch 
with client testimonials. I don't, I don't think it matters if you're at an 800-lawyer firm or a one-lawyer firm. Um, you ought to be able to get your client's work and do a good job. I think it matters more if you're at the smaller firm, right? Because sure. we, we say we it all otherwise? the time. Nobody gets fired for not considering you know, Bob Smith, Esquire. You, you might get fired for not going to Hush Blackwell and at least getting a quote for a complicated legal matter. I think it's more important for that small and medium-sized firm to really have their marketing act down and, and have a really tight process for collecting those testimonials. And, and there's still room for the generalist, um, the woman who's uh, 45 years old and been in um, practice for 20 years and can do just about anything. But I think I see the profession becoming more and more specialized. And if you are specialized, then you have something to sell. Yeah. I have a friend who's a personal injury lawyer, and I call her a personal injury lawyer, but she only does med mal cases. I mean, because she wants to be the expert in med mal. She doesn't do school bus running over a kid case or, um, you know, a window blinds strangling a kid case. That's not her expertise. She does med mal. She has colleagues who do those other things. Yeah. And I think you're selling something if you're an expert. Yeah, I, I think everyone's got a specialty, though. And going back to my days being in-house, and I started as a legal marketer in 98, and then I, I left the, the legal industry in 2008, but I did consulting after that. And I've never sat down with a lawyer, never, never have I sat down with a lawyer and started digging into their practice and asking targeted questions where they didn't come back with a theme. Every single time they've come back with a special industry that they focused on, a special group of people that they focused on, and each lawyer is different. Each person has a, brings a different background and a different set of skills and a different history to the table, and it's really just asking yourself those hard questions. What have I done? What does it look like? What does that group of people that I've represented look like? What am I practicing in? What industry am I in? And what most importantly probably is what am I interested in? If you're not interested in what you're doing, then maybe take a step back and say, okay, I have all of this experience, but how can I look at that experience and take it in another direction? If you hate what you're doing, you're probably not good at it. And, and that goes back to Bob's earlier point, which which is people know when you're being sincere. And if you wake mm -hmm. up every day hating your job and hating the type of law you practice, you're probably going to have a hard time attracting potential clients to convert and retain with you. That's correct. So I want to go back to, to the other thing you said. So you've got some attorneys out there with deep expertise in a very narrow, niche market. How do they get the word out about that? How, how does somebody who doesn't know them, who's looking for an attorney, and they happen to have this, this niche need, so, you know, I, I've done a lot of research on the generations, and one of the things that I read and that holds true with my teenagers is that the new generation coming out of law school is – technology is an extension of their being. My son can't go anywhere without a phone. Um he doesn't he doesn't he sits in his bedroom he doesn't have he doesn't go to the McDonald's and hang out like I used to do which shows how old I am but I don't think that that will ever replace the face to face relationships I I really don't and I think the first thing if you're a new lawyer coming out of law school and you're starting your practice and you don't know where to start start with the people that you know and ask for help Ask the lawyers that you know for help. Ask them where to start. Reach out to the um, – there's plenty of resources out there for for people learning 
to start a business, There's either a business or a law firm. Start with the people that you know and grow from there. Beyond After that, I you have to start creating awareness. You have mm-hmm. to start creating awareness. And how do you do that? Well, it's going to be different for every lawyer. But an easy, free way to start creating awareness is online. You yep. can do that through your own social media. You can start using that to expand your um, – your network. Another thing that I wouldn't discount is making a relationship with the media, getting the media to recognize you as an expert in the field. Yeah. And, and Bob Tommaso is an expert at that. He's been great at that since the day I met him, getting to know the media, getting them to know him, knowing what his expertise is. And when they call him, he picks up the phone, picks up his own phone even. <laughs> I think the expertise, though, is something that's often overlooked. And and so you asked a good question, Scott, which is if you have a niche practice, where do you find the work? Well, I think it was Ross Perot that I heard uh, quote Willie Sutton, uh, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. So it's the lawyer's job with a niche practice to find out where the money is. And and so, for example, I mean, the, 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 the story I told you earlier about ESOP litigation. Well, there's a group that specializes in ESOPs. Um, I think it's called the National Employee Ownership, uh, something like that group. You know, get involved in that group. Um, meet people in that group, um, and you will get work from it if you're, you know, if you're good. And the other thing is, lawyers want to market. Um, and all the time, I have people come up to me in, in our firm who will say, "So I'm always involved in some not-for-profit activity," and they'll say, uh, "Hey, uh, I'd like to get in, the, in that board. How do I do it?" And I'll say, "Well, let's let's back up a little bit." Is that something about which you're passionate? You know, if you're going to get on the board of the first tee, uh, which teaches kids life skills through the game of golf, uh, is that because you're passionate about teaching life skills to kids through the game of golf? If you're going to get a you know, diabetes association, is diabetes important to you? Uh, because once you become involved, you know, just showing up like a bump on a log and going to every other meeting like the other 25 board members gets you nowhere. Right. You really have to be passionate about the cause. Hopefully in a couple of years you become an officer in the organization so that now people are looking to you as a leader. And then and only then, of course, I, I don't say go out and join a lot of not-for-profits because you'll get business. Go out and join not-for-profits because you're passionate about the cause. But if you are passionate about the cause and you're really helping the not-for-profit board, the business work will, will follow. follow you. Absolutely. I feel like you need to plug Bamsel now. I do. And at the Bar Association of Metropolitan St. Louis, well, I, I will tell you this. is You know, you asked the question about niche practices. I think Susan and I have spent the better part of the last three weeks trying to pick uh, we did it yesterday, right? Um, committee and section leaders. And we always go through this list of members and we're always like thinking we can ask that person. Can we ask that person? Well, volunteer. You know, at, at Bamsel, we have dozens of committees and sections to which people sign up and belong. Um, and if you express an interest, you're automatically an expert, right? If you said to uh, the president of Bamsel, don't call me all the time, people. Um, you know, gee, I'd really like to run the employee benefits group. I'd really like to run the alternative dispute resolution group. I mean, first of all, we're desperate for that kind of help. Uh, and second, you will automatically be established as an expert in that area. Yeah. So get involved with like-minded people and groups, uh, and then you'll become an expert. One way to do that is through BAMSL. Yeah. And the referral network. You develop that referral network. You get the benefit of the marketing of that organization, whether it's BAMSL or another organization. I've been involved in lots of um, nonprofits volunteering, and you, you get the benefit of that network, too. So it does open other doors. Absolutely does, right? And I, and I agree. If you take a leadership position with a bar association, 
you are automatically you know the expert of experts, right? Because presumably everybody else on that committee is an expert in that, or they wouldn't be on that committee to begin with. And now you're in a leadership role. They all look to you. Yeah, you should be getting some referrals coming out of that. What about things like um, white papers, case studies, blogs? If I'm if I'm a small to mid-sized firm, how do I establish that credibility in the world? So with white papers, you know, I I don't know how popular those are anymore. I think that's kind of been replaced by blogs in my career mm-hmm. time. Um, blogs, I remember blogs starting back when I was at Blackwell. It was really kind of a new concept, and it really has become a way to have people find you online. I am a big believer in Google rankings and where you rank when someone Googles your specialty. And I think when you're talking about marketing lawyers and you're thinking about marketing your practice, if you do employment law, if someone Googles St. Louis labor and employment attorney, if I were that attorney, I would want my name to be first. I would want my name to be first for many reasons, not the least of which is that that's going to be a lead. That's going to be a lead probably. Now, I think that's a pretty broad term to have and and a pretty high hope to have your name pop up first on that list. So what is it that you do within that practice area? So um, I think anything you can do online that Google can find and that Google understands is going to help you build your practice. And I think it's worthy of um, taking time to really understand how Google looks at your online content and your profile, your LinkedIn profile is just as important, if not more important than your law firm profile at this point in time. I remember being in law firm, in the law firm environment and the and the attorney bios were something that we spent hours on, hours working on lawyer profiles. I can't even guess. Um, probably 75% of which was his when I worked And, and I wanted you to spend three minutes on it. You know? <laughs> I really did. But I do believe now that when you're thinking of working with someone, the first place you're probably going to go is their LinkedIn profile. So I think your LinkedIn profile, does it need to mirror your 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 firm's profile? No, it doesn't, I, and it, nor should it. But some time should be given to both because Google needs to find those key terms on both. And then what what have you done? Some lawyers aren't meant to, to get in front of groups of people and speak. They're, it's not how their DNA works. Yeah. But there's they lawyers are exceptionally intelligent. There's value there that that can be shown to the public and how do you get that out there? Well, some lawyers are meant to write. Some lawyers never want to meet another person. They never want to shake hands. And you can still market yourself if that's who you are. And yet the, the online world just opens it up. Um, so in I fact, it might, it might benefit you if you're that kind of a person, the way that Google does prioritize who they're going to give right. top ranking to, right? Right, right. And and pictures matter. You know, the, the Google algorithm changes all the time. Nobody quite knows what the secret is. But what I can say is that consistency, um, regular, regular interactions on whatever outlet you choose. Um, I am kind of interested in the white paper question, though. Do you, what do you think about that? So I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. Um, we tend to focus on external um, marketing and external relationships and in, in when we think about lawyer marketing. But there's a definite internal value as well. And so I don't not necessarily know. I know who the intellectual property lawyers are at my firm, right? But I don't necessarily know who has done a technology licensing transfer agreement in the healthcare field until I see something 
that comes across my screen um, that we're sending out to clients. And I see, oh, that person. Okay, I'll keep that in mind because the next time one of my healthcare clients has the issue, I can uh, disseminate it. And I'm sure the same is true. I mean, I picked a very narrow niche there, but I'm sure the same is true in mid-sized law firms where, you, you know, I knew that I knew she was a tax lawyer. I didn't know she specializes in tax as it affected conservation easements. So the more you're well-known to your colleagues, both externally and internally, uh, the better off you'll market. I agree. And so I think the, the real takeaway here is content is king, right? And, and it doesn't matter whether you're trying to raise your Google rankings. Just get the, the word out kind of amongst your peers, either internal to your firm or to other firms that, that might be looking to refer somebody when they don't do that work. You know, content, content is king. It's got to be refreshed and updated regularly. There, there's nothing more distressing to me than hopping on a, an attorney's website and seeing blog posts from 2017 and then like a, a five-year gap. <laughs> I got a call from a client. He was looking for a cannabis lawyer. And I said, that, okay, here's this guy, my partner, uh, look him up. And he did. And he said, well, the, I, I, was, I already talked to this person at another firm. And the person at the other firm once you got into paragraph five of his very long bio, for the first time mentioned cannabis law. Uh, the partner to whom I was referring him, cannabis all over the place, um, literally, pot, lay, no, um, but, but you know, <laughs> it, describing his cannabis practice. Um, and that's what you need to do. I mean, I have partners who are wise about it. They have, they have a healthcare-related uh, bio and a non-healthcare-related bio, um, you know, and, and, but you can't fake that expertise. If, if you do, you won't last long yeah. in the profession, and, and clients will start to pick it up pr- pretty quickly. Some people try it. Some people, maybe they're good enough to get away with it. But by all means, I think you've got to sell expertise, and you've got to sell real expertise. I, I agree with that, and I, and I do see – I see a reluctance from a lot of attorneys to share that expertise publicly. And it always confuses me. I'm not a lawyer. I, I should have – I usually start every podcast right. by disclaiming. I'm not a lawyer, so you guys get to make lawyer jokes. I'm afraid to, you know, because we sell to lawyers. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for for lawyers and what they do, but I see them as having this really what I think of as weird paranoia that if I put something out there that allows a potential client to see some some special sauce that I've got in my intellectual property in my head about my my practice area, that somehow they're not going to come to me. And I look at it. I can go on YouTube and I can watch videos about plumbing and wiring my house all day long. I can tell you I am never going to rip into my walls and start and start replumbing the house just because I can watch that. If anything, those videos make me respect that plumber a heck of a lot more. I'm more likely to hire a plumber and I might try to find a plumber who credibly can explain to me what they're going to do when they do that project in my home. I view the law as the same way, but I see far too many attorneys that take an, a different approach, which is, well, if I tell them in cannabis law that these are the things that need to line up, well, then they don't need to see me anymore. So I'm not going to say that. Yeah, the lawyer who teaches his clients self-reliance isn't very busy, uh, right? But <laughs> but having said that, I, I do think, um, you know, there's a way to get your expertise across I do find, and I have been guilty of this too, you have to be very careful if you don't have the client's permission – to talk about the specifics of a case, then you need to rewrite that yeah. case study or that um, you know experience line in a different way. Now, most 
clients who defend themselves in court, you know, large corporations, don't really like you throwing their names around. Um, but if you ask the client for permission, whether it's a piece of litigation um, or a transaction, um, then you ought to promote that. And clients know that. And they, if they, you know, if you have a good relationship with the client, they're they're happy to do it. Um, or you know, for a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer, the small and solo people can use initials. You know. JP sued this healthcare yeah. institution, uh, recovered you know three million dollars. Or, or we've had five clients who have been in this situation, and this is the general yep. path. Yeah, Bob, Susan, is there anything else that that we should be talking about when it comes to client management, or what Bamsel can do if you're a St. Louis area attorney? We kind of already talked about getting involved in Bamsel. I mean, Bamsel is uh, an organization of 6,600 lawyers and judges in the primarily in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Um, I know one of Bob's goals this year is to talk about collegiality and the and the environment of the legal community. And, um, you know, lawyer health is a big issue, well-being, lawyer well-being, the well-being of the legal industry. Um, diversity and inclusion is something that we've been talking about a lot in the, in the legal industry. And those are hot topics throughout our nation, if not the legal industry in the world, probably. If you want to be a part of those conversations, a good place to start is is not only your local bar, but for anyone listening, their state bar, um, other legal industry organizations like legal services, um, just being a part of this, of the change of the culture and the future of the legal industry. Um, I think those are good places to start. I think the best thing we can teach other lawyers is don't be afraid to solicit negative feedback because it's out there whether you've solicited it or not. Yeah. I don't know for certain that there's not a tarantula in that trash can. Um, but, I, you know, if there is, it would be good to know, right? Yeah. And so if, if you handled something for a client and that client wasn't happy – uh, finding out about it will only help you in your practice. You're not going to go through life with, you know, a thousand client experiences, all of which are perfect tens on a scale of one to ten. And the more you know about why your client wasn't thrilled with the work you did for that client, the better lawyer you'll be going forward. Yeah. You should adjust your practices, make sure that you correct it, and you don't repeat those mistakes. And again. you might avoid a malpractice claim that way as well. I, I had a partner many years ago. I said uh, I had lost a case in, in federal court. I said, how do you get over a loss? He goes, I don't know. I've never had one. <laughs> and, 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 you know, but I'm, but I'm thinking to myself, well, you haven't tried enough cases because the way to really learn in this profession is to have something go wrong. Uh, you will learn a great deal about trials when you lose one probably more than you will when you win one. I'm not encouraging people to go out and lose. Um, but again, don't be afraid to solicit that negative feedback. What many people have told me, uh, in, in sometimes in state court, you're allowed to poll the jurors later to find out you know, what they were thinking about. Uh, what a great experience. What a great opportunity to yeah. learn um, you know, how you might have tried the case differently. You know, we are at Lexicon a proud partner of BAMSL. And you know, we are offering a special promo. So for anybody who is local, go to lexiconservices.com backslash BAMSL, and you will see that we're offering a $200 gift card for anybody who signs up for a 12-month subscription for just a single user of the Lexicon software. I, I do want to just point out for those of you who are listening, we provide at Lexicon a lot of the services that we spoke about today. This is not just an infomercial. It, it's a legitimate discussion and a chance for everybody to listen from, you know, to these experts that we were able to bring on from both BAMSL and then 
the the very successful Hush Blackwell about how to run a better firm that is very client-focused, customer-centric. But if you are interested in doing some of these at your firm and you don't know how, feel free to reach out to us. We are always happy to help. Exactly. Scott, Susan, and Bob, thank you so much for your time today. As always, you can catch this episode and other episodes of the Lex Factor, as well as Lex Factor Briefs episodes where we talk about the latest news in the legal tech and legal industries within our knowledge base section on the Lexicon website. Go to lexiconservices.com, click on the knowledge base tab, and then you'll be introduced to a plethora of blog posts, podcasts, and other helpful information. Until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to The Lex Factor. Lexicon takes care of business so you can take care of law. Learn how to build a better practice at lexiconservices.com.